0: Thanks for listening to The Vine's podcast. The Vine is a church in Austin, Texas with a simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this message helps you in doing just that. The scripture reading for this Sunday is Joshua 24, 14 through 21 and 25 through 29. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. And the people answered, Far be it for us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods. It was the Lord our God himself who brought us and our parents out of Egypt and from that land out of slavery and performed those great signs before our eyes. He protected us on our entire journey and among all the nations through which we traveled. And the Lord drove out before us all the nations, including the Amorites, who lived in the land. We too will serve the Lord because he is our God. Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord. He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, he will turn and be, bring disaster on you and make an end of you after he has been good to you. But the people said to Joshua, No, we will serve the Lord. On that day, Joshua made a covenant for, a pe- for the people, and there at Sheshem he reaffirmed for them decrees and laws. And Joshua recorded these things in the book of the law of God. Then he took a large stone and set it up there under the oak near the holy place of the Lord. See, he said to all the people, this stone will be a witness against us. It has heard all the words the Lord has said to us. It will be a witness against you if you are untrue to your God. Then Joshua dismissed the people, each to their own inheritance. After these things, Joshua, son of Nun, the the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. This is the word of the Lord.
1: This is our fifth and final week in this monument series. I hope it's been a blessing to you and been a little bit of a monument in your own spiritual journey with Jesus. Uh, We come to this final monument and uh, it's, I've really loved my time in scripture this week preparing for it. To begin, I wanted to uh, throw a picture of a, a place, a monument here in Austin and see who knows where this is. Who knows the name of this place? What's that? No, it's not that. Wrong. <laughs> Who else? No second guess. Yes, it is a cemetery. Very good, Miss Julie Smith. That's your, that's your present right there. This is Texas State Cemetery. Okay, so right there, a couple blocks east of I-35 on 7th Street, right across trendy hipster places, like a place called Tacoba, uh, is Texas State Cemetery. This is my favorite monument in Austin. I love it. Uh, perhaps Julie knows about this place because one year for my birthday, we got dressed in Halloween costumes, rode around in bikes, and we had different stops along the way in East Austin. We stopped in the cemetery, and we told ghost stories. Uh, But I love Texas State Cemetery. It was founded in 1851 after the death of General Edward Burleson, who was the vice president of the Republic of Texas, not the state of Texas, the Republic of Texas. After his death, they created this 22-acre piece of land, and in this land lies the remains of some of the most notable uh, Texans in our history. It's the final resting place of two American Revolutionary War veterans, uh, has an astronaut there. Fourteen of our state governors, including Ann Richards. That's where her tombstone is. Susanna Dickinson, who famously fought in the Battle of Alamo. That's where her grave is. Um, Stephen F. Austin. Heard of him. Coach Daryl Royal, for you UT fans, that's where his resting place is. And it will be the final resting place of George W. Bush, our former president. And if you've never walked this cemetery, these 22 acres, you just have to do it. It's incredible, and it's right there, a couple blocks east of I-35. For me, I love going to cemeteries. It's super weird, but there's something about cemeteries that it does something to me. It's like a sacred place, a a thin place, where you enter into deep time. If you guys remember, I was talking, talking about there's two different types of time. There's the ticking time, and then there's deep time where you enter into a sacred moment. For me, I often have sacred moments walking through a cemetery, and I've thought long and hard about it. I think it's because in these places of cemeteries, we, we cannot neglect the promise that all of us share, that all of our lives will come to an end. And in these cemeteries, we are just confronted with that promise, that reality that we all have. And it's funny because we live most of our days with that promise at a stiff arm. We've muted it, we've tamed it, we've declawed it because we don't want to live with it. But by not living with death in mind, we don't know how to truly live. A friend of mine told me a couple years ago, he says, a wise person always chooses a funeral before a wedding. The idea of, of choosing a funeral, why? Because death can be a really good teacher. Death teaches us the importance and the urgency of every single day, the beauty and the preciousness of life. And it teaches us to count, make every day count. And for us, if we lived with the promise of death in mind, especially of being people who hold the eternal life of Christ, wouldn't we live differently? Wouldn't we see life differently? In our scripture reading today is the final moments of Joshua's life. He is on the threshold walking into death, as we just read in this passage. This is his final conversation he's having with his beloved community. And the interesting thing, too, is this is a really important moment for the community as well. They had just entered into the promised land through Moses' leadership, and Joshua actually led them into the promised land, and they just got done uh, their conquering. They just now have the land that was promised them. And after this moment with Joshua, for the first time, they're going to break into their tribes and settle down. They're going to settle into their homes. So this is a final moment. In many ways, for Joshua and for the community, they're entering into a new chapter. And so this is an important conversation. It's like the moment at a deathbed in a hospital when someone looks at with you with urgency to say something that's really important. That's what this passage is all about. Verse, in chapter 24, the first 13 verses, I love this, the first 13 verses we didn't read was simply Joshua retelling their story. Just to remind them. You know how old people, they just become really proficient storytellers, uh, he wants to, to spend this time saying, this is what happened with Abraham. This is what God did with Abraham. And God then promised a nation and a land, and then, then God brought about this person, and then this happened. And of course, they know the story. They've lived the story. Oh, and then there is a man named Moses. Have you ever heard the name Moses? And then, you know, he tells them what happened with Moses' life. And then he even says about their own life. And then you, the people, you entered into the promised land, and God delivered you. You crossed over the Jordan. And all of this is a dying man's wish. Don't forget. Don't forget what God has done in and through your life. Don't forget this. I remember when I uh, spent my last conversations with my gra- grandfather, he lived in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, And he was always a storyteller, but as he got closer to death, he spent more and more time telling me stories. There's something about the importance of remembering your story, for me to remember where my family came from, because it changes how I live. And Joshua wants them to remember this. And then after this history lesson, Joshua then grabs the nation by the arms, leans in, locks eyes, and begins appealing to them, pleading with them in verse 14. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. We don't talk much about fearing the Lord. We don't like that phrase much. But for whatever reason, Joshua is saying, if you want to know how I wish that you should live, it is that you would learn to fear the Lord. This idea of fearing the Lord for us, it might, it might bring up a lot of bad ideas of how we grew up with this idea of an angry God. It might conjure up these ideas about God as this angry parent who just, you never know when they might spontaneously just burst into anger and violence. But I think what this is saying is something very different. This is a, having a holy trust of God. It's, it's about having a sense of awe and respect and honor towards God. It perhaps is the same fear that, uh, for me, a mountain climber has of the mountain that you don't take it likely what you're about to do. You're struck at the the vastness, the bigness of this mountain. And that's actually a really helpful picture for me because unhealthy fear pushes people away. It makes it where you don't know what you're doing, and it pushes you away. But a healthy sense of godly fear draws you closer, like how we're drawn to oceans and mountains. Why? Because they're more vast than we can comprehend. They're out of our control, and yet we're drawn to it. This is the same type of fear that Joshua wants them to live with God, to be drawn towards God, someone who I cannot control, someone who draws me closer to him. It's that kind of fear with faithfulness that Joshua's wanting. And then Joshua gets fixated on something even more peculiar for our day and age. The fear of God leads to something else. In verse 14, Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped, beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. Verse 15, but if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourself this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates, the gods of the Amorites, the people that, in the, which they, they are now living in, in whose lands you're living in. So it's like you need to choose who you're to serve, either the gods that you're forefathers your foremothers served or your environment here and now and josh was saying to these people before you settle down into your home before you actually settle down into your places and let your guard down you need to consider what you are worshiping this idea of idol worship it seems archaic it seems something that's really not meaningful for us you might think i i don't worship to a statue i don't pray to a statue i don't do that but the idea of worshiping is, is much more vast and much more important. When you ask yourself, what do you worship? It's another way to say it is, what do you give your life to? What do, you, what do you give ultimate priority? What do you make sacrifices for? That's what you worship. And what's interesting to me about this passage is what Joshua is saying is, the question is not, you need to choose if you're going to worship or if you're not going to worship. What what he's saying here is, you need to choose for yourself this day whom you will serve. Because the reality is, we have to worship. It's just a part of the human nature. We were created to worship. I I love this. John Calvin, he's a French theologian, uh, many years ago, (laughs) he said this quote, the human heart is an idol factory that we were created to worship that we were, it's intrinsically how we were created, that we were created to worship something. And that's actually a really good thing, because our longing has been to be in a place where we are worshiping God, this is how we were created. But the problem is, when we are put in places, we are worshiping the wrong thing in the wrong place. And I think for many of us, the problem is not that we love the wrong things, but is the order in which we love the things. St. Augustine would say, The essence of sin is disordered loves. It's when your loves are out of order. That's when you're prone to sin. It's okay to love life and cherish it. But when you place the love of something specific over the benefit of others or your commitment to God, your disordered loves have led you to idolatry. So your family... Your spouse, your comfort, your health, your friends, your body, your intelligence, your position, your reputation. None of these things are inherently bad. But they all can become idols when they're disordered. And they will always let you down. If you idolize your beauty, what happens when you age? If you idolize approval from others, what happens when you realize you can't please everyone If you idolize materialism, what happens when the stock market crashes? Rockefeller, he was once uh, the world's richest man. Uh, At that time, one of the first billionaires. And a reporter asked him, how much money is enough? And he gave the honest response, just a little bit more. His disordered love was never satisfied. Always demanding more. Requiring more sacrifices. Makes me think, what's my disordered love? Jesus gave us this warning in Matthew six twenty one. This is an incredible warning for us. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Whatever you treasure most in this world, there is where you've put your heart. And I think for many of us, we have treasured things that are fleeting, unstable, and so we have put our heart in places where we know it's going to be broken, it's going to be lost and we were created to treasure God, to have our hearts set in a firm place where you know where it's going to be, that God is trustworthy, true, it's, he's good. And instead, we choose fleeting lovers. Not only is disordered love bad for, for me, for my heart and soul, but it's also bad for the people around me. If I begin to make idols of the things around me, then it will be destructive to the people around me because nothing created in this world can match my desire for what I worship. So if I worship my children, if if I put my ultimate value in this world in my children, I will end up strangling them because they, they were not created to meet that desire, that need. What happens when my child fails? I'm a failure. What happens when my child chooses a path that, doesn't bring me as much honor, well then I will try to coerce them in any means necessary to live up to what I want them to be. Do you see how this would just make any child crumble? In the same way, your occupation, if you make that your idol, your career, your position, it will be destructive for the people around you. Because so what happens when that new person, that new guy or girl gets in, and then they get the promotion that I've been working so hard for? I will despise them. They become the enemy. Why? Not because they took that job from me. They took my life from me. And you see how these idols have ripple effects in the community. And Joshua is saying, before you go, you need to cast all of this aside. You need to learn to love God and serve him wholeheartedly. Our worship of smaller gods have ripple effects. Joshua wanted them to know that. In verse 16, the people answered to Joshua's warning. They answered him saying, far be it from us to forsake the Lord, to serve other gods. It was God, it was Lord our God himself who brought us and our parents out of Egypt and from the land of slavery and performed the great signs before our eyes. He protected us on our entire journey and among the nations through which we traveled. And the Lord drove out before us all the nations. We too serve the Lord because he is our God. What a great declaration these people made. But notice how Joshua responds. It's a beautiful response, but Joshua says this to him. Verse 19, you're not able to serve the Lord. He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. Is Joshua trying to talk him out of this? I don't think so. I think these are the words of urgency and seriousness of a man who's about to die, who knows that they need to truly mean these words. And especially this idea of a jealous God. Is that disturbing to anyone else? The idea of a jealous God? For me, it conjures up bad memories of uh, ex-girlfriends, right? Maybe for you, ex-boyfriends. Jealousy or a child who's looking at someone else's Uh, someone else's toy, longing for it? Why can't I get it? Is this really God? The character of God is always that of love and goodness. God's character always leads us to greater life, so God's jealousy has to be a gift to us, it's a gift of grace. Why? Once Jesus was asked about his character, why he was doing what he was doing, why he was going after certain people and not others, and Jesus slipped into a story. He told three different stories all about A jealous longing for something that was lost. A lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost child. And each of these stories was Jesus painting a picture of the jealous longing that God has to get back what has been lost. And the reality is, that is a gift. Soak this in for a second. God hates losing things in this world, and he'll go to great lengths to get them back. And I'm talking about you. Take this in that God has a jealous love of you, that he looks at you with longing, oh, if they will only worship and serve me, if they will only not live with smaller gods who will leave them empty and dry, if only they could put their hope in their heart and their treasure in me. This jealousy of God is for our own good. And isn't it crazy that God is jealous for our worship, our affections, and our life? St. Augustine prayed once that our hearts find no peace until they rest in you. And that is the case. We weren't created to worship anything else. It's not how life works. A scary truth I found this week is in Psalms 115, verse 8. It speaks of a byproduct of worshiping the wrong thing. Uh, It describes people who make idols and worship idols. And listen to this. Those who make idols will be like them, and so will all who trust them. What God's word is saying is be careful in what you worship, because you will become whatever that thing is. Whatever you worship, there's a power that you will be transformed more like that. And isn't that a beautiful thing? Because if we were wired and created to worship God, what God's jealousy is doing for us is, In our worship, our wholehearted, undivided worship of God, not only is God hearing the praise and seeing lives lived and served for him and for his namesake, but also we get to become more like the image which we bear. We become more and more like Christ. The more we worship and serve Christ, that our souls and our lives start becoming transformed to be more like Jesus. This is how worship has been developed and created by God. In verse 25, it goes on. And on that day, Joshua made a covenant for the people. This word covenant, by the way, that kind of seems like a contract. It seems really sterile. Like, so he made a contract, and both parties signed. But it actually is a word of relationship. Uh, the way in which God established healthy relationships was by making a covenant. And so it's deeply intimate. Our God wanted to make promises to people, and likewise, God wanted to hear the promises from people like you and I. And so here, he made this covenant for the people, and there at Shechem, he reaffirmed them for the decrees and the laws, and Joshua recorded these things in the book of the law of God. Then he took a large stone and set it up there under the oak near the holy place of the Lord. There are a couple things that are just incredible about these words that might get lost on us if we don't know the geography or the background. These words being recorded in the book of the law of God, this is the law of God that's actually in the ark, that holy ark that has been carried throughout their journey that reminds them of God's holy presence with the people. And what I love about that is that Joshua said, all right, let's take God's word out and let's write our words too. And so what's happening here is a blending of God's words and people's words, God's vows and people's vows, and they exist there in the very ark, the presence of God, to be a reminder of who God is. God longs to be with his people. And so their words are blending here in a very beautiful way. And this stone, this monument, is a reminder of that relationship that God wants. But notice the place here. Shakem. And this is just, by the way, this is not a pastor trick. Anytime I see a place, a word that I don't know what it means, I do a quick Google search. There's not like a pastor's book that we pull out, we get the end of seminary, and we go, oh, okay, great. And we I don't know Greek that well. Like this is not I just literally Googled Shekem. I wanted to know about this place. And what I found, it just moved me. So where is this place? Shechem, the first time we find this place was in Genesis 12. And it was the first time that God spoke to Abram. It was the first time that God spoke to Abram and promised him a land and a people. He says this, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. This is so long ago. And Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. Notice where is the stone being placed? Underneath a great oak in the same very place. And the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, to your offspring I will give this land. And so he built there an altar to the Lord. Isn't it crazy that the stone that was being placed is in maybe the same exact place that Abram had this encounter with God when God said, I promise that I'm going to, Give you a place and you will be a great nation. Isn't it crazy that this final monument before the people burst into the promised land as a nation, into their tribes, is at the same very place where this whole thing began? This beautiful circle of God's faithfulness. I promise I'm going to do this. And here at this, this same place, Joshua is saying, here is the stone to remind you of the commitments that you made. And don't forget that God has been faithful. Isn't that beautiful? That God's been so good to them. And here they are back in the same place. In verse 28, then Joshua dismissed the people, each to their own inheritance. After these things, Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, he died at the age of 110. The monument in this story is this rock, is this rock that is the reminder of this covenant that was formed. And uh, it's the reminder not only of the vow that the faithfulness that people made, but it's also the lasting legacy of Joshua's life. It's this lasting legacy of, of Joshua's life. Here at the end of his life, he wanted to leave a legacy that outlived him. He wanted to, to leave a stone that would be a reminder of his life and his legacy. And after this moment, he would die and the people would scatter, but also the people would return to this place sometimes, and I wonder if they would come to this place and see this stone and remember Joshua and how God uniquely used Joshua in his life. And maybe, just like walking through a cemetery, I wonder if people also stopped and they saw the stone and they wondered about the end of their life, wondering, what is the legacy I hope to leave this world? What's the legacy I hope to leave my community, my family? And more importantly, how can I start living into that legacy here and now? What legacy do you want to leave? Jesus' legacy was made in a similar moment with people upon the cross. Mirroring Joshua's words, Jesus knew that we couldn't do it. He knew that we couldn't worship wholeheartedly, that we couldn't serve only God, but he could. Jesus could. He knew that we couldn't only love a pure-hearted way of God and no one else, but he did. Jesus lived the life that we were created to live, to love, to serve, to worship God without any disorder. And Jesus knew that we would worship the wrong things and this would always lead to death. Yet Jesus died the death. Instead of condemning us on that cross, Jesus died that death and said these words in Luke 23, 34. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. In other words, for this morning, they don't know that they're worshiping something so weak compared to you. Forgive them. And after Jesus died, his life was marked by a stone as well. The stone wasn't under an oak tree, it was covering his tomb. But this stone is a reminder of his lasting legacy because as this stone was rolled away, it revealed the extent of God's jealous love of you to reclaim that which was lost, to say, you're mine, that this is Jesus' legacy. So friends, my appeal for you today is choose today whom you're going to serve. Choose today whom you're going to give your life for. Choose today who you're going to worship. And furthermore, we might need to choose today, what do we hope our legacy to be? As we leave this world, and we all are going to leave this world, what is the legacy we hope to leave this, this place, our community? And how can I live into that today?